0: So, it's really wonderful to be here with all of you in this creative flow, not just sitting together and breathing together and walking together, but this morning to be in the painting studio with some of you and getting my hands into the colors, and tomorrow I'll go to Susan's writing workshop. It's really a wonderful experience. And ever since the beginning of the retreat, I keep thinking about this dream that I had about a year and a half ago, which was about a month before my novel was due to come out. And at that time, I was also teaching here at Spirit Rock. I was midstream on directing, along with Philip Moffat and a number of other wonderful vipassana and yoga teachers, a training program for yoga teachers, training yoga teachers in mindfulness. And so this was quite a serious endeavor that we'd been engaged in for a while, and we'd Done one of the retreats and we're heading into the second. And uh, right about that time, I began to think about my novel coming out. And uh, my novel, as Anna mentioned, is called Enlightenment for Idiots. It's uh, the story of a young California yoga teacher uh, looking for awakening in all the wrong places, uh, traveling around India trying to get enlightened and screwing up her life. And uh, one blogger compared it to. Uh, kind of sex in the city set in an ashram. So um, it's somewhat irreverent and a little bit racy at times. And uh, as I was thinking about teaching on these retreats here and the novel coming out, and it was starting to dawn on me that this book was going to be out with my name on it in big letters, and that you know people were actually going to read it, other than people in my writing group, which is where my fiction had been being read for the past 20-some years in my writing group and exclusively in a writing group. So I think I was getting a little nervous, and uh, I had this dream that I was dressed only in a black velvet bikini and white fur-trimmed rollerblades. <laughs> and I was skating around this roller rink, spinning and dancing and really having a fabulous time. And I looked over and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. and. My first thought was, wow, that looks totally hot. And then my second thought was, what if I run into Jack Kornfield while I'm dressed like this? <laughs> what if I run into Philip Moffat? Uh, is this really appropriate? And uh, I woke up feeling very anxious. Uh, so it's great to be here on this retreat where I feel like, you know, it's. Totally, I could be in my black velvet bikini and my white fur-trimmed rollerblades. And, you know, Anna and Wes and Susan, everyone would just be fine with it. And uh, uh, I think it's wonderful for all of us to have this opportunity to heal any imaginary split we might have in our minds between our wild, creative, uninhibited, um, playful, artistic selves and what we think of as our serious spiritual selves, and to realize that there isn't any difference between these, that we can really be fully in our artistic and creative, expressive voice, and be fully in our spiritual practice, our practice of awakening at the same time. So that, for me, is really the opportunity of this retreat. And for me, the path of the body, of being in the body, is really one of the ways I've come to integrate those different dimensions of my being. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit today about uh, the body and creativity, and particularly about reclaiming creativity through the body and through body-based practices. And by body-based practices, what I mean is any practice which brings us more in touch with the living experience of our embodied life. For me, that's been primarily yoga, but it can be tai chi, it can be dancing, it can be walking in the hills, it can be gardening, it can be simply sitting and meditating as we practice it here, you know, as an embodied practice. Any way of consciously bringing that sense of aliveness to our body in kind of disciplined and focused way. And I really wanted to talk about it as a tool for reclaiming creativity, because for many of us, the journey to creative expression has not been an effortless one. And I know it was not for me. There were ways in which I felt cut off very young from my creative expressive flow and really needed to work hard to begin to open that up again. So it wasn't as if, you know, the novel just poured out of me effortlessly. It was really kind of the culmination of a process of beginning to open and get in touch with that storytelling voice. So I thought I'd tell you a little about my own journey and then talk more about some of the specifics of how a body based practice can has helped me and um, might be of service to you as well. So my creative journey began, I would say, when I was about two years old, and I made a remarkable discovery, which was that if I held in my hand a bunch of Popsicle sticks, I could tell stories to myself. I don't know how this worked. I didn't question it at the time. I assumed they were Popsicle sticks that I had actually eaten the Popsicles off of, um, but I don't remember that. I just remember that from my earliest memory, I would be able to hold these popsicle sticks and tell myself stories, and it was as if part of my brain split off from the other part and became a storyteller, which would make up these stories that completely surprised and delighted me. I had no idea where they were going. I had no idea what kind of characters would walk in. Sometimes they were characters I recognized from books that were read aloud to me or as I grew older that I was reading to myself. Sometimes they were completely invented, Uh, but this was my primary way of amusing myself. I came from a very large family. There were seven children. I was the youngest, and so I did not necessarily have the undivided attention of my parents at all times. And we were also moving a lot. I was in a military family, and so I often was in transition, landing in places where I didn't know people. And so these characters who would come to me via the popsicle sticks uh, in some mysterious way were often my best friends for large stretches of time. And so I would tell these stories to myself, at first aloud, and then I started to notice that adults were listening, and I wasn't so into that, so I would go in a room and shut the door and do this. And at a certain point, I think I was six or seven, I was doing this, and I noticed that someone else was in the room, and I was kind of horrified to see somebody was in the room listening. And then I realized that at a certain point, the stories had gone sub-vocal. So I was not saying them out loud to myself, but I felt completely entertained by them. It was still this feeling of, as if I were being amused by stories told by somebody else. And so I kept doing this, uh, what I called playing with my popsicle sticks. Everybody else thought I had stopped. My parents would sometimes refer to that cute game I played when I was a child, not realizing that kind of hidden in my uh, sock drawer were a bunch of popsicle sticks. And. It was like a physiological need to go in my room and tell myself stories with these sticks. If I didn't do it in the course of a day, I felt something dammed up inside me that really needed to move. Uh, So I kept on doing this well past the point I was embarrassed to tell anyone about it um, into my early teens. And then when I was 14, I went to boarding school, at a very strict um, boarding school in New England, and found myself with a roommate and no way to be alone with a very demanding academic schedule, and also for the first time being trained in literature and what constituted good writing and good stories. Uh, so there was no time or space or you know allowance to play with popsicle sticks. I was also somewhat of an outsider, um, kind of a, a misfit and I did not feel that being seen playing with popsicle sticks would enhance my social standing in any way. So I didn't do it at all and at first it was very disturbing to me. I could feel this need to go and and, uh, tell these stories. Uh, But I kind of got used to it and on my first vacation home, I remember it was one of the first things I did. As soon as I had a chance, I went to my room, I pulled out the popsicle sticks, began to tell the story, it was a little difficult. For the first time, there was a layer of self-consciousness. I would drop in and out of the trance, couldn't really do it very well, managed to kind of do it, but it didn't have that sense of satisfaction. I went back to school, and again, another semester of not doing it, of studying literature, came back for vacation and went to try and do it, and it was gone. Absolutely no access to it whatsoever. and. I put the popsicle sticks aside and kind of thought, well, you know, that's too much of a kid game anyway, and uh, kind of went on with my life and went on with my schooling, um, channeled my writing into journalism and writing academic essays, there was no creative writing program in my high school, and uh, got very good at those things. And uh, you know, at editing, edited the school newspaper, no more storytelling. And then I went to college, and the idea came to me once again. Well, maybe it would be nice. I didn't say play with my popsicle sticks at that point. I said write fiction. Maybe it would be nice to write fiction. I now had a word for this. So I'm still not feeling at all in touch with that creative flow. I enrolled in a creative writing program at the university. And my writing class was taught by... An extremely well known and very prolific um, writer. She was, you know, kind of in the very highbrow literati, um, uh, extremely well known. Uh, although I didn't actually know anyone who had read any of her books, I hadn't myself read any of her books, but I certainly knew who she was and was very intimidated by her. Uh, so being a freshman in this writing class was. For me, a little like you know, being a kindergartner in a math class taught by Einstein. It was, I was very intimidated. It felt way out of my league, and uh, I still had no idea how to get that creative flow going. So I asked her. I said, "What do you do about writing writer's block?" And she looked at me and looked at the class and said, "Well, when I was in college, what I used to do is I would sit down at the typewriter." I'd take a whole stack of paper and I'd write a novel over my lunch hours and then uh, when that was done I would turn it over and I'd write another novel on the back because I didn't want to waste paper and then I would hold, throw the whole thing away and I'd do another one. Does that help? <laughs> um, I thought no, not in the least, but I didn't have any clue how to um, how to say that. Again, I was very intimidated, so I went on with the writing workshop. Um, Again, you all, I'm sure if you're writers, know the format of a writing workshop. I have a great quote from The New Yorker recently um, on an article on creative writing workshops. It called it a combination of ritual scarring and 12-on-1 group therapy. Uh, It goes on to say it's um, a regime for forcing people to do two things that are fundamentally contrary to human nature, actually write stuff, as opposed to planning to write stuff very, very soon, and then sit there while strangers tear it apart. So that was my experience of the writing class, and I have this one very vivid memory of this august teacher. Um, Fortunately, this was not my story. Somebody had submitted a uh, 25-page story, and the teacher, the writer, was looking at it. And she said, well, you know, this, this on page two this sentence is quite good. And she paged through and pulled out another one. And this on page 21, this, this sentence is, is also very, very good. And she let the rest sort of fall to the ground and said, you might have to write some kind of transition. <laughs> Well, this did not do a lot to free up my creative voice. I managed to choke my way through that semester, you know, getting out the minimum that I could do without, you know, hoping to bring down this level of uh, humiliation. And uh, I stuck with it for two semesters and decided I was not going to be a writer after all. Um, I switched my major from English and creative writing to Um, religion and uh, uh, with a concentration in Buddhism and yoga and began doing meditative practice and thought I would just let the fiction writing go. And I went on after college. I continued to write quite a bit. It's mainly magazine writing um, and uh, journalism of various kinds. I went to a number of quite wonderful writing teachers actually over the years and and teachers, and freeing up, the, freeing up the creative process because I still had this feeling of wanting to get back to that free storytelling voice. Um, and those were quite helpful to begin to open the flow, but by far the most helpful thing to me was my practice of yoga and meditation that I had begun as um, when investigating um, various spiritual paths as a religion major. I began meditating, I began doing yoga. And that, for me, really became the door to finding and developing and enhancing various aspects of the creative flow that really helped me begin to get back to that sense of being a storyteller again. And so I thought I would just talk a little about what were the aspects of this practice that I found so helpful and how they really relate to our journey as a writer or a painter or a performance artist or a musician, whatever your art form, these fundamental principles all can be explored via the body. So for me, the first of these principles is the idea that Anna was talking about in the sitting this morning, which is the practice of coming to our senses, opening our sense doors really dropping into the lived experience of being in a human body, Um, the experience of tasting, sensing, smelling, hearing, all of these things that are part of our incarnate experience. We can explore these dimensions of our embodied experience through our meditation practice, and we can also explore them through our movement practice so that we're coming more and more deeply into the lived experience of what it is to be a human body on a very direct, sensate level. And this process can be a kind of exploration, a kind of moving into areas of our experience that may have been dimmed down or numbed out. I don't know if any of you have ever had this dream. I've had it as a recurring dream for years, Where you discover suddenly there's a new room in your house that you haven't noticed before and you go in and you open the door and oh my goodness i had no idea there's this space i can move into it i can live there maybe i can't maybe it's full of dark cloudy you know cobwebs maybe it's full of wonderful artistic tools but it's a very common dream for me and the process of exploring our body in a conscious way can be like that it can be a way of opening these doors to different dimensions of our human experience, different parts of our body that we've closed off. This is from a a poem by Lisa Lowitz from a wonderful collection of yoga poems. Um, This one's called Downward Facing Dog, and it begins, within my body there's a city, nameless streets, dead-end alleys of pains and promises, mapless Atlantis, cordoned off by years and bones. The muscles pull, the tendons throb, my joints crack out their resistance. Places I've ached undetected for a quarter of a century send out their muted frequencies from an unfamiliar pose." So we can begin through our movement practice in whatever form to go into that nameless city of pains and promises, to begin to see what's there. And when it's there, there can be incredible treasures. This is another poem, this one a bit older. It's from Mirabai, the 16th century Hindu mystic. And she says, O friend, understand, the body is like the ocean, rich with hidden treasures. Open your inmost chamber and light its lamp. Within the body are gardens, rare flowers, peacocks, the inner music... Within the body a lake of bliss, On it the white soul swans take their joy." So that's what we begin to open to as we move into our bodies, the sense of untold treasures, untold possibilities, and feelings that we may have pushed aside or ignored for many, many years. Because, of course, through the body we open not just to our raw senses, but also to our emotional body, our feelings, our memories. And again, it can be a process of awakening things that may have been sleeping or numb. We begin to build up our capacity to feel. We begin to build up our willingness to feel what's there, the pleasurable and the unpleasant, the joyful, the ecstatic, and also the painful, the tearful, the broken heart. And as we do that, we open up a kind of range. It's like tuning our instrument um, so that we can really feel more the full experience of our humanity. And of course, as artists of any kind, that's incredibly valuable to us because this is what we actually want. This is what we want through our art. We want to feel. We want to feel and then express from a place of contact, of connection with our feelings, with our memories, with our imagination. And so the body can be this great doorway into that. um, So that whatever our art form, we're, we're speaking or painting or writing from that place of contact, of full contact. And we're also then more likely to use a concrete language an imagery which is alive, is fresh, is vibrant. This is another quote from a writer, um, Bonnie Friedman, in Writing Past Dark. She says, meaning does not have to be injected into a story like juice injected into a cooked turkey. Things themselves are translucent with meaning like paper translucent from grease. Meaning is held in the web of things like honey held in a comb, or a soap film held in a hoop, or a bundle of the sun's radiant energy held in the very green of chlorophyll. So you all know this as artists. You know that by coming into contact with our life, you free up tremendous energy to express through your art. And the body can be a vehicle for helping you to do that. Another thing that the body practices are very helpful for is tuning up our ability to listen to our inner impulse, to move from what wants to move through us. We really cultivate this art of sensing what wants to move, what wants to be expressed. And again, when I first began doing body-based practices, I didn't have a clue what this meant. I mean, I would be in a movement class, and the teacher would say, "You know, tune in and feel what your body wants to do and I would half open my eyes and peek around to see what other people were doing and kind of get some cool ideas to move because I didn't know what it was to move from the inner impulse any more than I knew what it was to write from the inner impulse. Uh, All I could do when I tried to write from the inner impulse was imitate something that maybe I had read recently that I thought was kind of a cool way of writing. I didn't have a sense of what was my authentic voice or when I did I didn't trust it and so Through movement, I began to tune up that impulse, that ability to follow that inner impulse. The poet William Stafford calls this following the golden thread, that thread of authenticity that leads us deeper in our art. Uh, Stafford actually wrote a poem every day, whether he felt like it or not. And he believed that each one of the details of our incarnate life could be like the end of a thread. You would pick it up and you would follow it delicately, sensitively, and it would lead you somewhere worth going. Uh, Robert Bly, another wonderful poet, uh, wrote the introduction to a book of poems by William Stafford, and he talked about this impulse of following the golden thread. And he says that according to Stafford, every detail, the sound of the lawnmower, the memory of your father's hands, a crack you once heard in the lake ice, the jogger hurtling yourself past your window. All of these will lead you to amazing riches. And he said that he actually asked Stafford, does it matter what end of what thread you pick up? Are some threads better to follow than others? And Stafford said, no. He said, every thread is equal. He said, only the golden string knows where it is going. And the role for an artist is one of following, not imposing. So as an artist, as somebody working with the body, we learn to find those threads and follow them, follow those faint little voices and see where they lead us. I found that incredibly helpful when I was writing my novel because uh, again and again, I would try and impose a plot line on it. I would try and impose an idea of where I thought it was going. You know, I had some outline and thought, well, this is what needs to happen. And I I had trained up the ability to notice when that began to feel false. You know, I'd be writing along and I'd read it and I'd just think, you know, she just wouldn't say that. She wouldn't do that. He wouldn't behave that way. This doesn't feel right. And I don't think I could have trusted that impulse if it hadn't been for cultivating it through listening to my body, really trusting over and over where something was taking me so that I could kind of tune in and say, oh, you know what, I know I thought it was going this way, I know I had it all worked out to go this way, but actually it's gonna go this way and I'm just going to follow that. I think that sense of following the thread is also really useful in our life as well and the more we practice it in our, in our art, the more able we're, we are to do it in our life and v- vice versa. So. This is William Stafford himself talking about following this thread. He says, There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So that sense of following that thread as artists, as movers, as livers, is related to another benefit I've found of the body-based practices, which is the ability to really own and claim our authentic voice, to step forward in the world, you know, to follow that thread, and then at a certain point to share where it's leading us and to kind of step out with that kind of nakedness and honesty that it takes to, at a certain point, reveal your work to another person when that feels right. I think following the thread can help us know when it's right to reveal ourselves, when it's right to hold ourselves more closely. And it can also give us the courage to express even when it's scary. And again, training that up in the body can be helpful. I know for me, as it is for many people, the scariest people, I think, to reveal myself to were my parents. I grew up, as I think I mentioned, in a military family. Um, my father's a retired army general. And at the time the, my book came out, he was in his 80s. And um, my mother uh, and father are both Catholic, um, very conservative. My mother, uh, I remember when I was in junior high, she wouldn't let me wear jeans to school because she felt they were too risque. So. Uh, I was a little nervous about my book coming out and you know, I managed to put aside the thought of my parents reading it um, you know, as I was working on it. And uh, but as it became clear that it was going to come out, and they could still read, I think part of me was hoping their eyesight would have totally <laughs> failed at that point. No books on tape, sorry, mom and dad. You know, but no, they were still reading, and my dad kept saying, "Gee, honey, I can't wait to read it." And uh, so I had this brilliant idea. You know, when the book was actually out, I remembered that uh, when we were children. We were all reading way above our age level, and my mother didn't want to discourage us from reading, but she also felt that a lot of books just weren't quite that suitable. So she would go through books before we read them, and she would write in the margins, children, skip this part, <laughs> and then she could give us the book with utter confidence that in fact we would skip these inappropriate parts uh, right over them, which is why we all grew up so sheltered and pure. So. I had this idea. I thought, I'll send my parents the book, and I'll put little post-its in the margin. Parents, skip this part. (laughs) So I actually did this. Um, Believe it or not, I sent my parents this annotated book, um, thinking, all right, now if they read past that, it's their own problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got a call from my dad, and he said, thank you, dear, for for the book. I gave that one to your mother, and I've ordered mine on Amazon, and uh, (laughs) so I thought, oh, well. So I waited with some great trepidation for their response and I actually got a call from my father a few days later and he said it was he said honey your book was just wonderful he said it was just grand and he said it's so you must be a really talented writer because you were able to create a character who was so completely unlike you uh-huh. <laughs> who has absolutely nothing in common with you or your experience and you really made it sound convincing and then my mother called me up and she said honey I'm so proud of you it's it's amazing the way your vocabulary has grown since you were five (laughs) so it was really all right and uh, um, I hadn't had anything to worry about after all but I think I wouldn't have had the confidence to uh, To even write the book, if it hadn't been for this training again and again in revealing myself through movement, you know, revealing, feeling what was really there, and allowing it to express. Another of the wonderful benefits of being in a body and exploring a body-based practice is that through being in the body, moving consciously, directing our energy consciously through our bodies, we begin to awaken and open the flow of the life force, the creative energy, the prana, that is coursing through us always at every moment. In the yoga world, this is known as prana. Um, In the Chinese system, it's known as chi. You can also just call it life force energy, but it's the energy that's constantly moving through every living thing, animating it and expressing it. And by opening into our body, we begin to awaken that energy and move it into areas where it may have been dull or stuck or stagnant. The yogis have a map of the body. They say there are 72,000 energy channels or nadis running through the body, and many of these are often dull or dark or clogged. By moving our attention consciously through our body, we can begin to awaken the flow of the energy through us, and that in turn awakens us to the possibility of more creative expression, because the nature of this life force is creative, and as, I forget who was saying, I think it was Barbara who was saying earlier, everyone is creative. We all have this energy flowing through us. It may be stuck, it may be blocked, but we all have this capacity to awaken it. And as we awaken to this energy, there's also something refreshingly both personal and impersonal about it yes it's our energy we're part of it we feel it in a unique way we feel our own unique expression of it but it's also the expression of a life force that's moving through the world that's larger than us that can carry us along and so there doesn't have to be this feeling of here i am with my limited little body and my puny experience and my little tiny bundle of energy trying to make a mark in the world with my pencil or keyboard or pen or, or instrument. Instead, it's more a feeling, I'm just opening to something larger than myself, and I can let it carry me. And that's very freeing. It kind of takes some of the burden off it and makes the artistic process, for me, it made it less egocentric. It was more about, what wants to move through me? and what wants to be expressed here, and trusting that the life force has an intelligence of its own and will express itself in intelligent ways through us, as us, and that really our job, again, is to open and follow rather than to force and manufacture. We can also work, as we begin to balance this life force energy one of the things the yogis believe is it not only courses through the whole body, but it concentrates in these three central channels right up the core of the body, at the core of the spine, and then up either side of the spine. And the one on the left corresponds to the right side of the brain. It's the more intuitive, receptive, fluid, feminine aspect of our being. The one on the right, is the more active, dynamic, left-brain, analytic, structured part of our being. And through working consciously through these energies, we can begin to balance these two aspects of our being, because we really need them both as artists. We really need that structure, that discipline, that form, but without that sort of fluid, spontaneous, receptive, um, more yielding quality will just end up with empty forms. So this leads me to another benefit of the body-based practices, which is balancing out in our own being, in our own lives, in our own bodies, these qualities of structure, form, um, discipline, that coming again and again to the mat or the cushion or the hill that we walk on, or the dance floor, um, coming to the easel or the blank page, returning ourselves, returning our attention. This takes a certain amount of discipline and structure to do that. And yet once we're there to have that freedom, that ability to yield, to surrender, to open, to let go, again, to see what wants to move through us in our bodies we can explore in a very concrete, tangible way this interplay between form and spontaneity, between structure and freedom, between um, form and formlessness, really, opening to what it is not in form, and then as artists giving it form, expressing it as form to other forms, who will then let it in their own being dissolve them back into openness again. So that creative interplay is a precious aspect of the artistic journey and of the body-based journey. And as as we balance that sense of form and formlessness, as we really open to our bodies we really begin to open to the level on which we really can't control anything. Um, And we learn to have a certain level of peace with that. And in particular, coming to peace with the impermanence of everything that we do, everything that we create, um, all of the forms around us, all of the people that we know, all of the stories that we tell. Through the body, we come into direct contact with the truth of impermanence. And it's really not hard to see how. I mean, drop into the body and what do you see? It's changing. Every day, it's changing. Every moment, it's changing. The passage of time is written very clearly in our bodies. And we can begin through our practice to have a kind of openness, a kind of comfort with this seeing that everything that arises in our body passes away. We can notice how yoga poses that we could do yesterday we can't do today, or ones that we couldn't do today we, yesterday we can do today. We see how our body changes as we grow older, as we get sick, as we become pregnant, as we give birth. And we get intimate on a really lived, sensual level with this process. And being intimate with impermanence, on on one level, it helps our art because we realize that everything that we're creating is also going to pass away, and that that's really fine. That's part of the nature of things. We can create with an open hand, offering it, knowing it, knowing that it will dissolve. And also, we know that everyone we're speaking to or painting for or writing for is also impermanent, and that that gives a certain depth to our offering. This is a quote from Annie Dillard. She says, write as if you were dying. At the same time, assume you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients. That is, after all, the case what would you begin writing if you knew you would die soon? What could you say to a dying person that would not enrage by its triviality? And so to really live with that felt sense of our impermanence, and again, not from an idea point of view of like, well, I'm going to die and everyone's going to die, so I better write something really serious, you know, or I really better write something, you know, that really takes on this problem head on. It's a much more organic process of, I'm coming from a felt sense of my impermanence, of everything's impermanence. I know that in my body. I know that in my bones. And then again, trusting that what arises from that will resonate with that truth. And it can be light, it can be playful, it can be joyful, it can be sorrowful, it can be whatever's arising in the moment but we're holding it in this context of our own and its impermanence. I remember I was uh, struggling years ago with my, my writing, and I'd been writing one of the numerous novels that I had begun and discarded after a page or a chapter or three chapters. And I said to my sister, who's also a chapter, I mean, who's also a writer, I said, <laughs> and she's a chapter, big <laughs> chapter. Um, she, I said, I feel like you know I did all this work and it's wasted. And she said very cheerfully, well, you know, eventually everything's wasted. And uh, I paused and then she said, or nothing is. And I thought, oh yeah, that's the spirit to create in. That's the spirit to create from. So I'm going to close with another dream that I had which relates to all of this. Uh, this was a dream I had, I can't remember when, I think a couple of years ago, I was still working on the book, I think. And in the dream, I was actually in therapy, uh, in couples therapy with a friend of mine who's also a writer, who's a very serious practitioner of yoga and Buddhism, and, uh, um, and was writing a fairly substantial and serious book on yoga and Buddhism at that moment. Uh, and so I think I was feeling a little intimidated about that and a little bit of a feeling like I ought to be writing a serious and substantial book on yoga and Buddhism instead of this, this uh, chick-lit spiritual novel that I'm I'm playing with. So I had a dream that we were in therapy together, and we're actually not a couple, but this one, the dream was couples therapy. And we were both fighting for the microphone and uh, the therapist was going back and forth. And she'd finally got us to a point where we were listening with, to each other and dialoguing with each other. And suddenly in the dream, I turned to him and I said, the only purpose of writing is to wake up. And he looked at me and he nodded and he said, yeah, I agree. And I said, and you can can wake up by writing so that you understand things more deeply, but you can also wake up by writing so that you come into contact with the world more deeply. That you actually feel things, that you actually sense things in a deeper way, and he said, "Yeah, I agree with that." And so we got up and we left the couples therapy office and we went to a yoga and meditation retreat. Um, and most of the people on this retreat were Brazilian samba dancers, and they all came in dancing, and we started to dance. And I thought, "This is my kind of retreat." And and I woke up. So. Uh, So I think that sense really stayed with me of that intention, the purpose that we bring to our art of any kind, writing, painting, whatever your art form is, that the purpose is to wake up and to live from a deep place. Um, There's a quote from a sculptor named Annie Truitt. Let's see if I can find this here. She said... To the most demanding part of living a lifetime as an artist is the strict discipline of forcing oneself to work steadfastly along the nerve of one's most intimate sensitivity. What you could say about the spiritual path as well, about the path of yoga, the path of meditation, the path of coming into our bodies, this discipline of coming to this place of intimate sensitivity with our lives, with our bodies, with our art, and really allowing ourselves to express from that place and then really trust where it leads us. So I'm going to close with a quote from Jane Hirschfield about... Actually, do I want to do this one? Yeah. A quote from Jane Hirshfield about coming into the body. She says... Uh, when the Greek gods would dip dip into the clothing and bodies of humans, it was not always as it appeared, not always, that is, for seduction or to test the warmth of welcome given to strangers. The sex, like the sudden unveiling and recognition, was not without pleasure, but later they would remember the barley soup offered one evening in the village, its wild marjoram, its scent of scorched iron and carrots. Ah, and the ones who turned away from us, how their eyes would narrow and wrinkle the tops of their noses. The barnyard odors. Oh, and afterwards, sleep in that salt scent close by the manure hordes and feathers. Sleep itself. Ah. For this soft Ah. Immortals entered the world of bodies. Mm -hmm. So enjoy that soft ah this week and enjoy your art. And thank you for inviting me to be part of it. Yes, a great ah.